The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Uh, and so I, I really find the opposite of what Cyril Richardson says. Uh, how do you find... This is important, don't you see? Because when we come to the Psalms, and the Psalms are full of uh, addressing the Lord, and uh, uh, Jesus is the Lord, uh, so the New Testament uses uh, it that way. It takes curios uh, from the Psalms, applies it to Jesus. Uh, uh, can we do that? And... Uh, uh, can we do that uh, realistically in practice? See, that's the kind of question I'm asking. Uh, does it make a difficulty to be praising Jesus as the Lord of the Psalms? Any uh, comments on that or a little? Yes. I think that sound that we do pray with the, the triune God in view because he's the one we're praying to, the triune God, but that... It means that we have every right to pray to the Father or the Son or the Spirit. Yes, the name of Jesus, surely. Right. Well, it's. Um, I think it's something to uh, reflect on that we do sing uh, the glorious name of Jesus uh, that is revealed to us in all of Scripture, and we do adore him as our God. And then we seek God's face we were looking at that penile passage yesterday, and uh, Jesus in the Old Testament as the angel of God's presence, and uh, how now we seek the face of God in prayer and realize that uh, that Old Testament description of the presence of God that must be at the heart of all worship, the issue as to whether the tabernacle would be built, the glory cloud in the temple when it's dedicated, the fact that God is in this place, uh, this is vital for worship because worship is not only directed to God, uh, it is uh, directed to a God who is present and it's the presence of God that heightens uh, the um, uh, ethos of worship. How is it that we do worship? Because not only we know that there is a God, but because we know that he is present with us or that we are present with him. And the New Testament talks about that both ways, doesn't it? In Hebrews 12, it says that in worship, we come to the festival assembly of the saints and the angels. Uh, in worship, we gather in that great gathering which defines the church, uh, not the ecclesia, the gathering at Sinai in the wilderness, but the ecclesia, the gathering of the people of God at, the, at Jerusalem. Only as Hebrews 12 tells us, we come not to the earthly Jerusalem, but to the heavenly Jerusalem. And therefore, we come where Jesus is. We enter into his presence. So we are worshiping in heaven where Jesus is in our times of worship. That's what we're doing spiritually. Uh, the the prosikamite and, and the approach that we make to God. Uh, we enter in where Jesus is. But also, 
uh, it's also true that where two or three are gathered together, there Jesus is in the midst of us. So uh, Jesus is present with us, and it's through uh, Jesus Christ, whether in heaven or in earth, it's through his presence with us that we may enter into uh, the presence of God and the face of God and the uh, appearing of God is seen in fulfillment in uh, Jesus Christ in whom there dwells the image of the Godhead bodily, uh, uh, Colossians 1.15. And then uh, finally, uh, in singing the name of God in terms of the Psalms, uh, we hallow God's name, we seek God's face, and uh, uh, finally, uh, we delight in uh, God's beauty. Uh, There are three classes of words in the Old Testament that... uh, Uh, describe uh, the beauty of God. Uh, I've written a little essay on this that has uh, been published in a feshrift for Carl Henry, Carl F. H. Henry. Uh, It's it's a book on culture. um, uh, What's the title of it? God and Culture, thank you. Uh, God and Culture, uh, uh, Carl Carl Henry feshrift. I have a little article in there on uh, uh, art uh, and... uh, the worship of God. And uh, so if any of you want to, are interested in that field and want to check it out, you can see if you think that contributes to anything. But uh, I'll just try to say briefly what the argument is. And if you want to check it, that's where to check it. Uh, this is my argument, that there are three, three classes of words in Hebrew uh, that are used for beauty. And uh, one group uh, describes the beauty of glory. Uh, that's like the beauty of the cloud in the desert, the uh, transcendent beauty, that is the uh, majestic beauty, the awe-inspiring beauty, uh, the kind of beauty uh, that you uh, sense when you're up in an airplane and uh, it's going past a huge cumulus cloud and you're flying at 30,000 feet, but the cumulus cloud goes up above you, you know, and... uh, uh, you just see this great pillar of cloud. Uh, when, whenever I have that experience, I think of that cloud in the wilderness, you know, and God's, uh, God's beauty in that sense, the beauty of glory, the beauty of majesty, the beauty of majestic awe, the, uh, of majesty that fills us with awe. So there is uh, the beauty of majesty, and then there's a, a second group of words for beauty uh, speaks of the beauty of design, Uh, That is, uh, the beauty of the dress of the high priest, the beauty of the decorations in the tabernacle, uh, the beauty of holy array as uh, people uh, go before the Lord in the Old Testament ceremonial system uh, in the beauty of holiness, uh, uh, that kind of uh, beauty, which of course is the beauty of design and therefore means the beauty of wisdom. And then uh, the third uh, group of words for beauty are those which describe the beauty of loveliness, that describe a beautiful landscape, uh, a beautiful woman, a handsome man, uh, the way in which we generally use the term beauty, uh, the beauty of loveliness. Now, all of these terms are uh, used in the Old Testament uh, in relation to God. Now, Calvin Seerfeld Uh, has done a lot of study in aesthetics. He's uh, uh, probably the the leading reform scholar in the area of aesthetics. 
and uh, he's uh, much against applying beauty to God because he thinks that's using Aristotelian categories and that uh, uh, it would make beauty only that which is uh, pleasant and desirable and uh, uh, therefore would have adverse applications in art uh, where uh, some artistic productions might be uh, calling attention to the hideousness of our condition. Uh, the uh, uh, Picasso, Juanica, uh, you know, with the agonies of uh, bombing of the innocent and so on, uh, that too is an artistic production and uh, you mustn't have an idea of beauty that would cut out the, the realism. Uh, think, uh, think that beauty just has to be uh, pretty in, in a narrow sense. Well, I certainly agree that uh, beauty is not just prettiness, uh, but uh, I do think that uh, something else that Seerfeld says is right on, and that is when he defines the aesthetic dimension as allusiveness, that in all aesthetic experience there is allusion, uh, which is a way of saying uh, that anything that we regard as aesthetically satisfying must operate it on more than one dimension. Uh, there must be another side to it, another aspect. Uh, uh, poetry differs from prose uh, because it not only uh, states something uh, understandably, but it states something in a way that so orders the words of expression uh, that uh, the, the wording is thought to be uh, particularly appropriate for the expression. Uh, maybe there will be a rhythm to the words. Maybe there will be assonance in the words. Maybe there will be rhyming at the end of, the, of, of the, the, some lines or whatever. And so there's always that other dimension. What makes the leap of a deer beautiful is not simply that uh, it can succeed to... Uh, go very quickly through uh, very uh, thick, uh, through thickets. You wonder how it ever got through. But uh, uh, what makes it so wonderful is that somehow uh, the arc of its leaping seems uh, so uh, proportionate and uh, etc. Uh, uh, you know how uh, Augustine reflects on the dimensions of beauty uh, drawing on his Neoplatonic background and how in the Middle Ages that was used in designing cathedrals. So there, there's all, this, uh, uh, all these aspects of beauty, all of which involve uh, the, this, uh, this element that uh, uh, is um, that uh, is elusive. But now, how does that apply to God? Well, I think it does. Uh, God is the source of truth isn't he? He's the source of, the source of all goodness, isn't he? Uh, and he is also the source of all beauty, I believe, in this sense, that it is the richness of the divine beauty that is the source of our aesthetic experience, ultimately. Uh, you see, if, if aesthetics involves another dimension, uh, then only God has all dimensions. <laughs> Uh, so it's the richness of the divine being that there's always more uh, to God than we can possibly plumb or understand or comprehend. 
uh, uh, God's an overflowing fountain of delight and joy to those that know him. There's always more of the divine being to be revealed, more of the works of the Lord to be exhibited, more of the wisdom of God to be perceived. And so there's all this richness of uh, uh, what we can haltingly call, the, uh, call a multidimensional God, a God who has all these aspects and, and who uh, brings together into one all these differences so that uh, God is... Uh, uh, amazingly simple even in the, the marvel of his diversity the, you know the simplicity of the divine being he he doesn't just have attributes he is his attributes uh, they're all one so there's all this richness of attribute but all drawn up into one and uh, my uh, my my belief is that God is beautiful in this majestic sense and the Psalms celebrate that He's beautiful in this divine uh, design sense, and the Psalms celebrate that. And he's also beautiful in this uh, delightful sense, uh, and that is the loveliness of grace. And uh, in Psalm 90, the last verse of the Psalm, uh, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us, yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Uh, and the term used there is the term that's used for loveliness, uh, the the uh, the beauty of God as uh, as loveliness, and uh, that loveliness of God is the the loveliness of grace, and of course we see that loveliness of God uh, through Jesus Christ, and amazingly we see that loveliness ne never better at the cross than at the cross. At the very time when he's made hideous in his suffering, uh, so disfigured as to appear inhuman, as uh, we read in Isaiah 52, and then running on into 53. Uh, at the time when he's made hideous in his suffering, at, at that very time uh, we see him as the one who is altogether lovely, the fairest of 10,000, the one who is uh, beautiful in the marvel of his grace and his love in giving himself for us. So there is the, uh, the loveliness of God seen in his grace as it's uh, revealed in Jesus Christ. Now, is and what he's done, uh, we do praise him uh, for the richness of his beauty and as that is revealed in Jesus Christ. Uh, the disciples see the glory of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, and that glory begins not with a glory cloud, but with the face of Jesus. His garments, his face are transfigured before the cloud comes. Uh, so uh, Moses had his face shining because he was in the cloud, uh, but now Moses is on the mountain again, and uh, uh, his face shines reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ, his Savior. Uh, the, uh, the, the glory cloud is... Uh, 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 is only an outward symbol of the true glory and the true glory shines from the face of Jesus. Uh, that's the Mount of Transfiguration. So the awe that we have for the glory of God is to be seen as centered in Jesus Christ. And the, uh, the wisdom uh, of God is in Jesus Christ. We'll see that uh, tomorrow if uh, uh, the, uh, there's not too much ice in the road. Uh, but the, the, there's this, this wonderful uh, picture 
of uh, Jesus, uh, who is the wisdom of God, who's made to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So all the intricacies of the divine plan is, all that intricacy is uh, presented to us through Jesus Christ as he teaches and it's exhibited in him. And then uh, finally, the, the wisdom of the light, uh, I mean the uh, beauty of the light, uh, the uh, uh, refreshment of the love of God as we find it in Jesus. And as I said, at the very moment when he's made hideous, he is uh, supremely beautiful uh, as he gives himself for us. Having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them to the end. Um, it, maybe I should tell you what that is. Uh, that's the, uh, that's the breast, breastplate of the, of the high priest. In uh, Green Lake, Wisconsin, there's a Baptist conference center, and the man who gave the conference center to the church was a gemnologist. He, uh, uh, he, was, uh, he collected rare gems, and uh, he had designed uh, the effort of the priest. He had it woven in linen with the blue cords and all that, and then he had the 12 gemstones as far as he could locate what they were from the Old Testament account. He had the 12 gemstones and had them... Uh, uh, inscribed in uh, not only in Hebrew lettering but in archaic Hebrew lettering <laughs> he had inscribed the uh, the names of the 12 tribes on the 12 gemstones and uh, if you ever get to Green Lake Wisconsin you can go and see a pretty fair replica of the ephod <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, there it was the, the ephod with the gemstones uh, the beauty uh, of design, the beauty of wisdom, the beauty of uh, the uh, ordering of things before the Lord, uh, the beauty of the one who will one day make everything straight and right and in order <laughs> when the, the chaos of uh, sin will be overcome in the harmony of the divine plan. Uh, the beauty uh, all in Jesus, uh, the beauty of awe, majesty, the beauty of design, the beauty of loveliness or grace. We'll take a break at this time. Now, uh, our first uh, responsibility just now is uh, I do want to talk to you about the outline uh, of Christ in the Psalms that was distributed earlier. You know, the main outline that I gave you on page four of that outline, part two, Christ in the Psalms. Now, as you will see from what I'm going to say in the next few minutes, uh, much of this has been covered in the different approach that I use in talking about the singing Christ and the Christ to whom we, we praise. Uh, but uh, I want to look at the outline with you so that you can understand the way it's developed there. Uh, the, uh, first of all, the, the first main point, the covenant theology of the Psalter points to Christ because the uh, Psalms are response to the covenant mercy of the Lord. And uh, first of all, that this is memorial utterance, that the praise is commemorating 
the mighty acts of God and that revelation of his great goodness and that, uh, as I pointed out from the Deuteronomy passage, uh, God witnesses to his own covenant by his inspiration of the Psalms. And that it means, you see, that his covenant is written not only on the tablets of stone, but his covenant is put on the lips of his people. As they sing the Psalms, they are witnessing to that faithfulness of God. And uh, then covenant service in worship, that is the proclaiming of the name of the Lord. Uh, and the one who is a servant of the Lord, an Ebed Yahweh, is one uh, who confesses the name of the Lord in worship. So you have the Psalms as response to the covenant mercy of the Lord, and then the Psalms in covenant history, in the history of redemption. And uh, now, uh, I'm not going to try to develop this point by point, uh, but... Uh, First notice, covenant praise is uh, the covenant promise is claimed that the petitions of the psalms seek God's uh, loving kindness, his chesed, his uh, covenantal mercy. And that's the point of chesed, that it isn't just mercy in the abstract, it's mercy in the bonds of the covenant that God himself has set up. And then the vow of the psalms uh, reflects uh, the covenant uh, as uh, that as is perfectly evident. And then the confession of trust in the Psalms, our assurance resting in the covenant bond and promise. Uh, don't you see how what we looked at at Psalm 22 is thoroughly covenantal? Our fathers trusted in you. See, uh, God has his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore with his people, and therefore he's dependable and can be trusted. And then covenant realization, the concreteness of praise in declarative praise. And uh, that's material that we did cover just now. And the uh, covenant fellowship, descriptive praise, touching on the attributes of God, the name of God, his presence in the sanctuary, and the fact that he's coming, coming to be present in vindication. And then the centering of praise. Now, I haven't said much about that, but you see the two points there, and they're obvious. Uh, there's a centering of the praise in the place where God has said his name. And that's why in the Psalms you find Zion being exalted and uh, the psalmist uh, inviting uh, you to uh, go about the city and count the towers thereof and see uh, what God has wrought in uh, raising up uh, this place where his name is to be found. So, and the city is glorious because of the throne, the throne of God that's there. But the other aspect of the centering, of the focusing of praise is also uh, in the Messiah. And... Uh, uh, I, I mentioned uh, to you a couple of times the, uh, uh, the whole idea of the structure of the Psalms the, uh, uh, and Mark Futato's study of that, uh, the five books of the Psalms and uh, the organizing of the Psalms done in the post-exilic period was done in a time when uh, the 
Ray Dillard used to emphasize the, the two great pillars, that there was the, uh, the, the house of God and there was the king. So there's the temple and the king uh, as great uh, bonds of the covenant. Uh, but you see, uh, the, the Psalms are collected in a period when the temple has been rebuilt, uh, but the king isn't there. And how can you get along without the king? And so uh, uh, Futato's uh, uh, enterprise right now is trying to reflect on the grouping of the Psalms to see how uh, that whole problem is being reflected on. Now, see, all he's talking about is how the Psalms are collected. He's not talking about how they're written, but just how they're collected and collected by people who had that particular problem. So there are two foci, as it were. Uh, One is uh, the place, the city of God, Jerusalem, and especially the temple where God is present. And the other is the Messiah, the king uh, in whom God's uh, uh, rule is manifested. And uh, the two foci uh, really come together. And of course, in Christ, they are specifically united, aren't they? Uh, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So his body becomes the ultimate temple. Okay, uh, covenant uh, uh, centering of praise. Then see covenant fulfillment, uh, realization, Christ the Lord of the covenant comes and receives declarative praise. The reason I wanted to call attention to this outline is it's because where I've given you direct references, do you see? I'm giving you references where Old Testament passages are referred to in the New Testament uh, to claim for Christ the things that are said in the Psalms. Uh, So that uh, he is the one who receives both the declarative and the descriptive uh, praise. And then uh, Christ, the servant of the covenant, he's the royal servant. And there you have the glory of the anointed uh, picked up in Hebrews from Psalm 45. You have the divine sonship picked up in the New Testament, Psalm 2 quoted, uh, Psalm 110 quoted. Uh, Then you have the royal procession, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord from Psalm 118 uh, referred to in the New Testament. Uh, Christ coming in, uh, of course, in the uh, the glory coming in to die, but coming in nevertheless in majesty to die, although in a humble majesty, riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the full of an ass, Zechariah 9. Uh, then, the, uh, uh, of course, the cornerstone psalm, uh, uh, the, the cornerstone referred to in Isaiah 28, 16, and also in Psalm 118, uh, the ascension, um, uh, Psalm 68:18, Ephesians 4:8, where it's quoted, and then Psalm 24. Uh, then the the suffering servant. He's the righteous sufferer of the psalm. He's the representative sufferer, and in him we find refuge. Jesus as the second Adam. Uh, psalm 8. Uh, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that uh, thou visitest him? And uh, in uh, Hebrews. Uh, 2, 6 to 9, that's applied to Jesus Christ. He is the true Son of Man. And uh, he's made uh, for a little lower than the angels, as it were, as a man. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, he is now crowned with glory and honor. So uh, the suffering servant uh, is also the victorious mediator. The triumphant servant sings. 
uh, in the midst of the congregation and among the Gentiles. Uh, that's the same material I've given you under the other outline. And uh, uh, he's uh, in heaven where he has ascended and is enthroned. Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. The most quoted passage from the Psalms in the New Testament. And uh, then uh, he is the son who is victorious and to whom every knee will ultimately bow. And so we have fellowship with the singing Savior. Uh, we join in the witness of praise with him in doxological evangelism and in the worship of praise because he comes to us to enable us to sing to the Father and we therefore gather to him. So uh, uh, you see, it isn't different material there. It's just differently organized. But I wanted to call your attention to it because of the verses that are given there. That will help you in your further uh, study and reflection. And now a second point that I wanted to make in re reference to the Psalms, I can also cover very briefly here. And that is that the categories of the Psalms witness to Christ. Uh, the categories, of course, uh, uh, are groupings of the Psalms, going back to Gunkel's uh, genre research, and uh, then uh, developed by Mo Winkle in uh, the Psalms in Israel's worship. And then there are the, the classifications, and I quote a Roman Catholic scholar, Drivers, who's written on this, uh, where he has uh, 17 psalms of praise, four of trust, 17 individual psalms of thanksgiving, 42 of uh, petition, and uh, uh, those of uh, pe pe petition include the ones that I was calling the psalms of lament. Now, of course, you have this all run down also in... Uh, Tremper Longman's book on the Psalms that I mentioned in your uh, bibliography. So you get these uh, many categories of the Psalms. And uh, my point here is to note that the major categories of the Psalms are all referred to Jesus in the New Testament. That is to say, there are quotations or allusions in the New Testament that... Uh, claim for Jesus words from every major category of the Psalms. And that's what I've given you there. Okay? Laments of the individual. <laughs> Psalm 22, verse 22 in Hebrews 2, 12. Laments of the people. And there are the, the references. Laments, uh, the trust in trouble found in the midst of the laments. And again, uh, New Testament allusion to the Old Testament passage in Psalm 91. Uh, then, second, Psalms of praise, blessing the Lord for his deeds, the Barak, and praising the Lord for his attributes, the hallelujahs. And uh, there again, declarative praise is uh, given to Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, declarative praise of the individual, declarative praise of the people, Descriptive praise is given to Jesus uh, in the New Testament. The royal psalms, of course, are quoted in the New Testament with reference to Jesus. And there I've given the references. And the wisdom psalms, too, are used uh, in relation to Jesus Christ when he is said to be the wisdom of God and when uh, uh, it is claimed for him. And, of course, as you all know, uh, the... Uh, 
the wisdom of God personified in a woman in Proverbs 8 is applied to Jesus Christ uh, in, by John uh, in his gospel when he calls Christ the Logos and then uses language reminiscent of Proverbs 8 as he describes Christ as the true wisdom of God. He uses the term Logos deliberately uh, because of its importance in the Hellenistic world as well as uh, because of uh, the importance of word uh, in the Old Testament. So he takes an Old Testament concept of the word of God uh, to choose a name for the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, but when he uses Logos, it not only refers to God's word, that which God speaks, but it also engages the culture uh, because uh, Stoic uh, uh, philosophy uh, said much about the, the Logos. Uh, uh, the uh, Stoic poet Cleanthes has a hymn to Zeus where he talks about the, the mighty uh, word that's like a lightning flash. And of course, for Stoicism, uh, the Logos, the word, was also a, uh, a, a term for reason, for uh, the ultimate uh, rationale of all things. And uh, uh, Stoic philosophy had that uh, seminal word, Logos Spermatikos. Uh, everybody has that, this little light of mine in him, you see. And, uh, and so... Uh, uh, John uh, uses a word that communicates to the Hellenistic culture, but of course his gospel is mainly being proclaimed uh, to uh, people who are synagogue worshipers. That's clear. I mean, to Jewish people, but also to uh, 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 proselytes, Gentile people at the synagogues. And at an early point, uh, there is a wonderful commentary on the Gospel of John by Don Carson, uh, uh, who's at uh, Trinity Seminary, Trinity Deerfield. And uh, it is a blessing. It is a real blessing. He's done all his homework. He gives you, all, he gives you the rundown on all the, the uh, discussions and quotes the scholarly literature and summarizes it all. And... Uh, it's a, it's a marvelous commentary. Uh, uh, so uh, read what he has to say about uh, the Logos and uh, the, the interplay with the Hellenistic world. Um, um, uh, Blachet, Henri Blachet is another one who's done a lot of uh, writing in that field. But um, anyhow, uh, the, the, thing I, I, the point I want to make is that uh, uh, you do have uh, the wisdom, and we'll see that some more tomorrow. If I'm saying a little bit of it now, if, if some of you can't make it tomorrow, but the, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the point is that Jesus is the realization of that wisdom, you see, uh, which, of course, is the point of Matthew 11. Come unto me, all ye labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Uh, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you will find rest unto your souls. And that whole word of Jesus, uh, in terms of vocabulary, is uh, right out of the book of Ecclesiasticus. At the very end of the book of Ecclesiasticus, there it is, uh, uh, where the wisdom of the son of Sirach, uh, the son of Sirach uh, calls people to take the yoke of wisdom and uh, says that for little labor they will find much rest. 
And uh, he used the, the language that is so similar to the language of Jesus. It's almost like a quotation. Uh, but there's an enormous difference because the son of Sirach is saying, uh, come and learn of wisdom. Uh, so he's saying what the book of Proverbs says, come and learn from lady wisdom. See? Uh, but when Jesus says it, he says, come to me, all you that labor heavy laden, I will give you rest. Uh, so Jesus steps into the role of wisdom and says, uh, not I can give you wisdom's yoke, but I can give you my yoke, and you can learn of me. Well, uh, those of you that get back tomorrow, we'll talk about that some more. Uh, but the wisdom psalms uh, have their focus in Jesus Christ. And then the refuge psalms. Now, here's the one category where I can't show you a direct quotation in the New Testament, uh, because... Uh, uh, the language of uh, refuge and rock and all uh, is applied. Uh, it, it isn't, there's no direct quotation of a refuge psalm in application to Jesus Christ. But the church is presented as a refuge that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. And of course, uh, the church... Uh, is uh, Christ's church. He builds it, so he builds the refuge for us. Yes? Good, that's good. That's right, yeah. That's good. That would help. That's a good suggestion. I, I, I don't know the reference either. In Hebrews, where it speaks of uh, going to Christ as refuge, it doesn't quote the psalm, but uh, using that language certainly suggests the psalm. That's good. I like that. I'll look that up and fix that, uh, put that in. That's very good. Well, somewhere I put a pencil. Oh, here it is. Well, yeah, well, we'll find it. Yeah, that's right. Refuge. Okay, uh, now I wanted to go through that just to give you your bearings on that uh, material. And uh, the whole point of that, the categories of the Psalms witness to Christ. Uh, you, you see, you see the, uh, the case I'm building for finding Christ in the Psalms. Uh, every one of the categories of the Psalms is, is picked up in the New Testament in reference to Christ. And we already saw how Psalm 22 itself has uh, these major portions of uh, lament and vow and praise and uh, trust. So uh, again and again, you see how the Psalms prepare us for Christ. Now, um, so in, I think in a very, uh, in a very real sense, um, we have 150 Messianic Psalms. that um, they, they all, in some way or other, are pointing forward to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we don't take seriously the differences and don't understand it. And, of course, there are problems. Uh, uh, psalmist will sometimes cry out, confessing his sin. Uh, Jesus can't confess sin because he doesn't have any. But uh, don't forget that he was... Uh, insistent on being baptized by John as though he had sins to be cleansed 
he didn't have any of his own, but he was going to bear our sins, and therefore he had to be identified with us. And uh, so don't forget that uh, uh, although he's not himself a sinner, uh, he was made sin for us. And then, of course, uh, as I was saying the, the other day, uh, the problem is not where to find them, but the problem is how you handle that there's too much. <laughs> I mean, Psalm 23, he's the, he's the shepherd uh, who guides us along. Uh, but don't forget, uh, Jesus himself could sing Psalm 23 in his human nature. And he could say, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And God did at Bethany, didn't he? Well, uh, they had the posters up in Jerusalem that Jesus was wanted, uh, but it was in the post office and everywhere. And yet uh, they had him to dinner in Bethany, right? <laughs> Uh, in the uh, thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies thou anointest my head with oil <laughs> uh, of course Mary anointed him didn't she on uh, that very occasion uh, so what Mary did in Bethany on the eve of the passion and did with discernment because she understood what, what he was going to do and even to some extent why uh, uh, sort of fulfilled Psalm 23 didn't it thou preparest the table thou anointest my head with oil uh, my cup runneth over. Uh, wonderful. Uh, it applies to Jesus, too, in the victory of his passion. Uh, but uh, uh, so it isn't a question of where you're going to find them. It's a question that it's uh, difficult to handle homiletically uh, because he's so completely present. He's there as Lord. He's there as servant. Uh, you can't make every message. Uh, in this psalm, we see Jesus, point one, Lord, point two, servant. Uh, that, uh, you might do that sometimes, but you can't make a habit of it. Uh, so, how, how do you uh, how do you work with uh, all this? Well, you have to consider uh, uh, what the main thrust of the psalm is, which aspect of its revelation of Christ is most uh, uh, evident in the structure of the psalm itself. And don't forget, you, you always start trying your best to find. See, we're talking about what the psalm really means. Don't forget that. This isn't some clever little trick that you can play on the psalms. This is uh, finding out what the psalm actually says, what it means, what it means in the situation. And then uh, understand how that carries forward in the history of redemption to Jesus Christ. Uh, and therefore, I... I, I I know that uh, Dr. E.J. Young, for example, used to say that uh, Psalm 22 was a completely messianic psalm. David is not talking about his own experiences. He's talking prophetically about Jesus Christ. And, uh, and you might support that from what Peter says about Psalm 16 in, uh, on Pentecost. Because he says David isn't speaking about himself. He, uh, he went into, uh, uh, he suffered corruption. But uh, even though I know this seems like going out and shaking on shaky ground, uh, I, I do think uh, that uh, there is a sense in which when it was written, it made sense in terms of experience. And David isn't thinking, I, I don't think that we can say that, well, put it this way, I understand Peter's words there to mean that the main thrust of this 
is because David's a prophet and talks regarding to the future. So that the, the reference to Christ is the main point of the passage. And that's how I would understand what Peter's saying. I, I wouldn't, I don't think uh, uh, that it means that it has no sense whatever in reference to David uh, for the simple fact that uh, David does so much speak out of his own sufferings and uh, uh, he, he so much uh, is involved in all of this. Uh, so that when the prophetic utterance comes that goes way beyond anything that applies to David, uh, then it's true, as Peter says, he's saying this because he's a prophet and seeing what's in the future. But nevertheless, that is a tremendous prophetic heightening of the kinds of experiences that David was going through. Well, I don't know what you all think of that, but uh, if you agree with E.J. Young, that's wonderful. Uh, but... Uh, uh, just uh, there is a certain continuity there I think as well as an enormous difference and, and both have to be taken account of uh, now uh, well just for one little moment uh, did some of you work on uh, some of those historical prophets so we could do a, just a touch of that um, Anybody work on Judges 15 or 1 Samuel 17 or 2 Samuel 23? Uh, okay, uh, what did you work on? Okay, Samson. Uh, uh, just uh, uh, give us a little rundown on that. Stand up so people can hear you. And give us a little rundown on Samson from uh, Judges 15, 9 to 20. Judges 15, 9 to 20. The judges passage, this is where uh, Samson is hiding out in the wilderness and his fellow Judahites betray him into the hands of the Philistines and by the power of the Spirit he breaks the bonds, kills all the Philistines with the uh, donkey's jawbone and then he gets thirsty and says to God, well I be thirsty and so die and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised and God gives him water in the desert from a rock. Uh, some things to notice first of all is if Samson sounds like anyone else so far in redemptive history it's Lamech uh, back in Genesis uh, 4 who is boasted uh, his response to killing these people is look what I have done uh, and if he acts like anyone um, or, or if the Judahites the, his fellow brethren in the Lord act like anyone they act like Philistines so God's people and God's anointed don't look very good here. Uh, it's important, I think, to take in just in the whole structure of Judges. Judges is a very embarrassing book. God's people, their nationalism is pumped up again and again. They're always fighting people who are overcoming them. But they always, their leaders are scoundrels and they are the kind of people who would follow scoundrels. That's, that's the way the book seems to work. Very contemporary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've been ordained how long? That was a joke. <laughs> um, so uh, they have here a profligate uh, Messiah, and they are people that fit with that. Now, um, in the book itself, uh, I think that you have to take the 
his response to his victory is that he's about to, to die from thirst. Now that they're already in the Pentateuch, which is the canon for the readers of Judges. You have this danger by thirst, God giving water, back in Exodus 17. Um, Israel is thirsty for the Holy Spirit. In this book of Judges, Israel is about to expire because it lacks the Spirit. Here, their federal head, their anointed, lacks water. He also seems to lack the Spirit in a general sense. Although he has the power of the Spirit, he sure could use a lot more of it, it seems. Um, Samson is about to die from thirst and fall into the hand of uncircumcised. The nation Israel is about to die from thirst for the Holy Spirit and be dissipated into the nation. So there's there, there, the connection between federal head and, and God's people is really important. Um, that was That's what's going on. So if you read this book, Judges, you would think, we need better messiahs. <laughs> uh, we need the Holy Spirit to be changed. Uh, I think that what's... Let me see. i got to get my order. Okay, connecting, seeing how, how this is typological of Christ. Well, first of all, the connection of the nation and the head. The person who, Christ, who became sin for us, uh, Paul presents as the head of the body. And the body of the church has all its vitality and all its life because its head became sin. Um, Samson, who is an, a total embarrassment to God's people, is typological of Christ. Uh, who is also an embarrassment, a curse. And it's from this cursed figure that uh, comes the blessing, finally. What would have been totally enigmatic and ironic uh, in Judges at the cross begins to make sense because of God's justice and the substitution. Uh, And we see the depravity. Christ on the cross, just as Samson is a picture of the depravity of God's people, Christ on the cross is a picture of the depravity of God's people. and the unconditional faithfulness. Uh, Samson, no, God should not open up the water and pour it out for Samson. Samson should die. Yeah, he killed the Philistines, but he's, he's despicable. But God, God honors him and saves him. And Christ on the cross is repugnant. Uh, the Father can have no delight in that. And the Father raised him from the dead. Um, Thank you very much. That's very perceptive. The... Uh reference uh, to the representative role of Samson and also the fact that uh, uh, Samson uh, was uh, so weak in uh, his uh, fulfillment of his office. Uh, he, he delivered Israel almost in spite of himself. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but don't be too hard in Samson. Don't forget he's mentioned in Hebrews 11. These all died in faith. Uh, he, he, he's still a believer. He still does what he does as one who is uh, uh, called of God to judge Israel. And don't forget, at the end of the account, it still says he judged Israel. You know, he was a, a, a true judge, uh, even though, as you say, uh, he was uh, 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 not... Uh, he was the kind of judge of which Israel might well be ashamed. He... Uh, uh, but nevertheless, don't you see, it's important that uh, the role of the man is not always the same as the way he fulfills the role. So he has a calling and uh, he shows the need for Christ, uh, as you were saying, and that's very good. And he shows the need for Christ because the book of Judges is written that way. See, uh, the book of Judges is... Uh, 
uh, is written uh, to prepare for the Davidic kingship. Uh, it's, it's written to show the need of the Davidic kingship. So the book is presumably written uh, when David was king so as to show why Israel is so much better off with David as king than it was in the period of the judges. So uh, the book itself is written with a perspective reference pointing to David. And uh, pointing to David, of course, it's also preparing us for Christ, that he's the one that has to come. And of course, there, uh, you get it both ways, don't you? You get the need for a better judge than Samson, and David is a better leader than Samson. And so is Samuel, a better leader than Samson, Samuel who anoints uh, David. Uh, but uh, not only do you have the need, you also have the positive in there, that Samson is revealed as, uh, uh, as one through whom the power of the Holy Spirit does work. Uh, so uh, the point is, even when he's tied up uh, and, and handed over by his own people, and uh, of course you shouldn't miss that. <laughs> uh, as you said, the people are as blameworthy as Samson, certainly. Uh, here, much more blameworthy, because they take uh, the one who's been raised up to be a judge of Israel, and they tie him up and give him to the Philistines. Uh, just as uh, Jesus is uh, uh, accused by his own people and handed over to the Romans. It's the, it's the same idea that the people of God betray and uh, give over uh, the one who uh, was given to them to be their deliverer. See, they're not ready to fight with Samson. Uh, they're not ready to help him against the Philistines. Uh, they're happy to give him up, get rid of him. Uh, let the Philistines kill him. He's... Uh, He's disturbing uh, the peace of our subjugation. We just want to be servants of the Philistines, and Samson's making trouble with the Philistines, and better to get rid of them. Uh, so they tie him up and bring him to the rock, and the Philistines shout as they see him being brought there. But the Spirit of the Lord comes mightily upon him. Don't miss that in the passage. And uh, then the ropes become like flax. <laughs> Samson, because he has the spirit, he can burst the ropes. And then he picks up this uh, jawbone of an ass, and uh, uh, with it he kills a thousand men. Uh, uh, it's interesting, you know. Uh, do you ever think about it? Which end of the jawbone did he take? Uh, I presume it was uh, half a jawbone of an ass. Uh, I'm not good on drawing jawbones of asses, but, uh, uh, you know, something like this. It, it, it sort of... Only I'm making it way too fat. That's my problem. Let's get rid of that. Um, he, he, he's, he's got the jawbone of an ass, you see. Uh, which end did he grab? Uh, this end. I can tell you authoritatively. Uh, uh, you, you know why? Uh, because uh, Yadin, who was uh, the head of the Israeli army uh, at, at one point, also wrote a book on the, the weapons of Israel. And he goes back to weapons of this period. And actually, swords were used that had basically this shape. If you don't believe me, look up Yadin in the library and see. And uh, uh, see, he, he grabbed it by this end and used this end as the cutting edge because there were swords actually that had that shape, basically, same shape. Uh, so, uh, okay, so he, he grabbed the, the jawbone of the ass and he went to work on the Philistines. <laughs> And he killed a thousand of them. 
Now, what's the point as that story is told? Well, it's not just that this is a wonderful story that Israelis love to tell. You know, here's their champion, and <laughs> oh boy, he's uh, he's all tied up. There's nothing he can do. All watch, and boom, man, <laughs> and then a thousand die. You see, it's a great story, of course. Uh, but the point, as it's told in the history of redemption, is that it's by the power of the Lord that comes upon him. And therefore, uh, the instrument isn't important. He can take anything with the power of the Lord, even the jawbone of an ass. He doesn't even have a proper weapon. Uh, but with it, he can uh, kill all these uh, Philistines. And then, yeah, you see Je- uh, Samson, you see what he's like. Uh, he killed a, a thousand men with it. And what does he say? With the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, and, uh, you know, there's a, a, a pun in the Hebrew because of uh, the, the uh, similarity of the word ass and heap. Uh, so uh, people have tried to translate that into English on some kind of pun, you know, with the jawbone of an ass, I have assassinated uh, uh, thousands. Or, uh, <laughs> uh, well, anyway, uh, here's a... Uh, that, you know, he's full of one-liners. He's, uh, he's a, uh, uh, a playboy, uh, essentially. He, he likes women and jokes and riddles. And uh, so he's got this, uh, with a jawbone of an ass, uh, uh, heaps upon heaps with a jawbone of an ass have I smitten a thousand men. Uh, yes, it, it's, uh, it's an absurd kind of uh, victory uh, cry. And yet, don't forget, it is in... Uh, it is in the celebration of a victory that God gave to him. It's by the power of the Spirit that he had the victory. And uh, then he's exhausted, he's uh, dying of thirst, and uh, you've given me this great deliverance, and now I'm about to die of thirst and fall into the hand of the Philistines. But then God opens the hollow place that is in Lehi, uh, um, the... the, the, uh, and the, the name of it is called En Hakora, the spring of him that called. It also applies to a bird that was uh, called by that term. Uh, and the spring's there to this day. Uh, what do you make of uh, the exhaustion of Samson and the reviving by being given the water? Well, he is, as it were, uh, uh, exhausted to death. But he's raised up and delivered. So there's... Uh, an anticipation of what God's going to do uh, through Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, look at Psalm 110. Um, Verse 4, The Lord sworn will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand will strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill with bodies. And now it's translated dead bodies, but just means bodies. But uh, Samson certainly filled the place with bodies, didn't he? A thousand. Uh, He will drink of the brook in the way, therefore will he lift up the head. There you see that same theme, don't you? Uh, He kills thousands, he fills with the bodies, uh, but uh, he will drink of the brook of the way, and therefore will he lift up the head. And uh, the (laughs) Apostle Paul, when he talks about the great uh, victories of Jesus Christ in the book of Ephesians, Uh, He picks up on the language of that psalm. And uh, uh, he he refers to the first part of Psalm 110. Uh, He says, uh, Ephesians 1.20, 
the work God wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, made him to sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that's named, not only in this world, but that which is to come. And he's put all things in subjection under his feet. See, that's Psalm 110, the first part. Sit thou my right hand till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. He put all his enemies under him, and he gave him to be head over all things to the church. Uh, see, the psalm says uh, uh, that then will he lift up the head. And the Apostle Paul takes that language, that vocabulary, and recasts it and says not only is his head lifted up, but he is lifted up as head. He's lifted up as head over all things to the church, which is the fullness of his body, uh, uh, which is his body, I mean, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So where the psalm says he fills with the bodies, Paul says he's the fullness of the body. <laughs> uh, so Paul sees Jesus Christ as a great champion, the great victor, uh, the one who overcomes all uh, and who, uh, who takes captive by his grace those who are his own. Uh, so in a certain sense, uh, we are the slain of Christ. <laughs> we are those who were his enemies, uh, but now uh, he doesn't fill with uh, cadavers. Uh, he, he fills with newness of life those that uh, he has conquered by his grace. Uh, so uh, he lifts up the head, and he's lifted up as head, who is head of, over all things Jesus Christ. Uh, so uh, in, uh, don't forget that in, uh, in Judges, uh, God shows that he doesn't need many. He can save by 300 uh, uh, Gideon. In fact, uh, he can save by one. <laughs> and uh, that one who doesn't seem to be uh, very prepossessing, <laughs> uh, but uh, who can be a deliverer, even though he has nothing in his hands but the jawbone of an ass, and uh, uh, who can deliver ultimately in his death because he, he kills more of the enemy in his death than in his life. And uh, he makes a wise crack to the very end. Uh, Lord, uh, give me vengeance for one of my two eyes. And then he pushes the temple down and uh, he destroys the, the thousands of the Philistines. Uh, very sad tale, yes. Very tragic, yes. Uh, but nevertheless, something that points us that there's got to be a better one who will come. And that's, it's written with that in view. There's got to be a better one that will come, David. But it goes beyond that. There's got to be a much better one that will come, and that's Jesus. And uh, he's the one uh, who, is, uh, who fills, as Paul says, who fills the body, uh, the church, uh, by his great victory, and uh, he's, his head is lifted up. Well, uh, those of you that make it, see you tomorrow. We'll look at the wisdom literature.